All right, does everybody have an outline tonight? Okay, good. If, you have, uh, if you've noticed, it's, it's pretty long, okay? We have a lot to cover, but don't worry. I have my phone up here, so I have a clock, and I will check it. I can't promise you how quickly before 7 we'll get finished. It may be 6.59, but we will be done by 7. That is the goal. So, let's have a lot of fun tonight. This is so much more exciting to me to teach tonight than it was last Sunday. I was so thankful that some of you said that you appreciated and were encouraged by last week. Last week was a difficult week for me. We had a a retreat here at the church. I'd slept like four hours. I was really tired and had a lot going on. And uh, just didn't feel like communicated very well. Tonight, I feel great. I've got so much coffee in me right now, I'm scared. And I have just a ton of stuff to go over, and it, it is all good. Uh, and, I, and I pray that God will use it for His glory and for our good. So, let's begin this way. In our culture, we find a people who love to communicate. We find a, a people who love information, and we love communication. You see it in many different ways. For, for me, I've got my iPhone up here. Sometimes I think I'm too cool with that iPhone, but I have my iPhone, or maybe it's just the internet itself. It's emails, letters by mail. I want to comment on those letters by mail. Some of you are very faithful in sending me letters by mail, and it just encourages me to no end when I get those. I love your letters, okay? But we love to communicate. However it is, if it's face-to-face, if it's on the phone, it doesn't matter. We love To communicate, and as a people, we love to know and we love to be known. That's just how it is. We love to know things and we love ourselves to be known, and that is no surprise. And the reason why that is no surprise is that we have a God, we have a maker who communicates. We have a God who speaks. He has communicated to us. And it is no shocker that men and women that are made in His image would also be all about communication. Our God that, that we have shows us, even in the opening lines of Scripture, that He's a God who speaks. We find our God speaking creation into being. And, and you're right, and if you're filling in right there, the first blank, we have a God who speaks. Let me just take a second. Tonight, let's praise God. That he speaks. Let's praise God that he communicates. He's not a God, who, a God who's silent. He's not impersonal. No, he's a God who communicates to the world in which he created. I'm so thankful for that. We take that for granted, don't we? We have a God who speaks. That's exciting. But the opening lines, we, we find God, and later the Bible is going to specifically call him Jesus. Okay, we have God specifically Jesus, creating everything that is. We have Jesus literally speaking and things appearing for the first time. We have the sky being formed. We have the waters being formed. We have stars and we have fruit and we have animals. We have plants. And then later in that, we have man. God literally crafts together mankind. We have the first man and the first woman, Adam and Eve, made perfectly in God's image. We'll talk more about that, about the creation account in just a little while. But we're going to ask this question, well, how does God speak? 
That's an important question, isn't it? How does God speak? Your next blank that you have, write this down. He speaks through general and special revelation. He speaks generally through the creation that He has made. Now this is a very broad subject and we could spend an entire night and really a whole series just on this. So I'm not going to say much about it. I just want you to understand it in this way. God speaks through what He has made. Whether it is a sunrise, a sunset, whether it's the stars, whether it is a person, a a, a man loving his wife, whether it is a father able to love his son, whether it is a person (laughs) that acts out justice whether it's someone extending grace to another, that is God speaking through His creation. That is called common grace. Now what we have in that is this. We have that God has created all that is. He has created us and He is able to show characteristics about Himself through what He has made. That's general revelation. We're not going to spend a lot of time on that. That's not what our study is on. What we are going to spend time on is special revelation. Special revelation is what God has specifically revealed to us through this written word. It's what He has written about who He is. He gives us information in writing. This is who I am. This is what I've done. That's good. That is really good news. That's how we learn about the characteristics of God. That's how we learn about Christ. That's how we learn about who He is. That's how we learn about what He has done and how it affects us. Specially revealed it to us. The most primary way which he is specially revealed is through the Word of God, through the Bible. And that is what we are going to speak of the rest of the series and especially the rest of the night. So what is the Bible? And if I start going too fast, just kind of, I'll, I'll probably see you sweating or something. I, we just have a lot of stuff to do, okay, and I want, I want to get it to you. What is the Bible? The word Bible actually means book. And that is why we have the word holy in front of it. It's a set-apart book. How many of you did not know that the word Bible is actually, uh, it actually means book? How many of you didn't know that? Raise your hand. Yeah. Interesting what all we can find out. Very simple. But it's a word that means set-apart book, a holy book. So when I hold this in my hand and I say, pick up this book, or I say something about this book, some people get... They don't really like calling it a book, but that's actually what the name itself means. The Bible is a book. It just happens to be set apart and holy. Okay? Christians believe that this book is truth. We believe that this book is truth. And that is why that we would call it authoritative. We would say that this book is able to speak with authority into our lives. That's different than any other book. Tonight I want to be clear that what we believe about this book is that, once again, I'm going to say it one more time, that it is absolutely true. It's a standard that we can live by. Take that to Barnes & Noble. People won't like it. Okay? But that is what it is. This is the Word of God. It is truth. It is truth. Thank you for the amen. Our main goal is not to, with this study, is not to defend that this book is true. Okay, I'm coming in here 
believing that you believe that the Bible is truth. Okay? But I am going to make some remarks about the defense of its truth. I will try to give you some information to help you understand why we believe it's true. But that's not the overall goal of this study. Our main goal is to see what the Bible teaches about its own nature. The first thing that we need to understand, here's your next blank, is that the Bible is a true story. I throw in the word true because you need to hear that again. It's a true story. The world desperately needs to know that this book is a story. Okay? We've got to communicate that to the world. I want to communicate it to the church and the church communicate it to the world. We need to do that. It's important. See, this is not just a book with a bunch of rules in it. It's not just a bunch of do's and don'ts. That's not what this is. Now, if you're doing your reading through the Bible, you're going to find out there are several hundred rules. We call that the law. There's a lot of rules that will be found in this book. But know this, it would not be appropriate to say that this book is a bunch of rules. This is a story. It's a story. It's a really interesting story because it's a story that has a lot of little stories in it. A lot of little bitty stories make up one big story. It also is interesting because there's a bunch of people that you find in the Bible. And we're going to call it this way. There's a bunch of little H heroes that we find throughout this book. We've got Daniel, and we've got David, and we've got Joseph. We've got little H heroes that all point to one capital H hero, Jesus. Larry said that this morning. So there's a lot of little stories that make up one big story. There's a lot of little people in it that point to one person. He is capital H uh, hero. His name is Jesus. This Bible is ultimately about Jesus. Okay? That is so exciting. It's a true story. It's different from other religious writings. And we'll, we have a whole section just on that. I want to make a few comments to you about this book. It is not a book about how we should get good and everything will be great. It is so crazy. And some of you, if, you just, if you're reading Genesis right now, how many of you are reading Genesis? Okay. All right. You're going to make it through Genesis and you're going to realize this truth. The Bible is not about, about a bunch of moral people. It's not. It's not a book about a bunch of moral people. It's not even a, a book about a bunch of people who get good. That's not what it's about. Now let me tell you why I would say that and why it's important to note this. What we need to do as the people of God is be able to communicate clearly that this is a story about God. This is a story about Jesus. And that way, it will prevent us from going into a culture and explaining to them a gospel that's not the gospel of the Bible. It will help people when they come in here not believe that they can't walk in because they have sin in their life. It'll make people realize that they are able to come to the God of the Bible because He's a God of grace. Because we will communicate to them, this is not a place and this is not a book that's about a bunch of moral people. This is a book about a bunch of marred people 
who greatly need a good God. A God who cares, a God who speaks, a God who would come into this creation, the creation that he made, that he would become part of it and he would rescue it. That's what the Bible's about. It's a story about God rescuing, redeeming, reconciling mankind to himself. That's what it's about. It's not a story about getting good. It's a story about getting God. You understand? I know that's cliche, but just go with it. It's important for us to understand that. It's a true story. And I promise when we connect our lives to Christ, when we, as we looked at this morning, when we abide in Christ, when He abides in us, when we abide in this Word, things in our life and sin in our life will begin to die and will grow and will look more like Christ. Once again, that's coming up in just a little bit as well. Woo, okay. Next, let's take a, a quick look or a quick breakdown of the Bible. And you can take, a, you have a section of this in your notes. So that first one was the Bible is a true story. Next, look at this. The Bible contains 66 books written by over 40 different people, 40 different authors, in three different languages. On three different continents in approximately 1,600 years. Now just think about this for a second. I was watching a little kid video earlier at my house that we have for Lucy talking about this. And they brought up a great point. It's so simple, but I hadn't, it hadn't registered in my mind yet. Think about most books that we can think of. Go and look. I love going and looking at books, by the way. Go to Barnes & Noble, walk through, pick up a book, look at it. Most books have one author, maybe two. Most books take two to what, maybe five years to write. Some a good bit longer, but just a number of years. Not too many. The Bible, 1,600 years. Over 40 different authors. And yet we have a story that, that complements Itself. It's a story that is clear and it communicates one big message and it points to one big moment in time where God will come in the flesh and his name is Jesus. Okay? That is so awesome. That's the Bible. That's really awesome. 66 books containing two testaments. <laughs> does anybody know? Do y'all know what testament means? Just make sure you know this. Interesting. Testament means covenant. Okay? Some people say promise. I don't, I don't like promise as much because there's not two promises. There's really one promise, uh, and it has its yes in Jesus. But two covenants, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. That's how it's broken down. The Old Testament has 39 books. <clears throat> I'll say this. I, I won't spend a whole lot of time on it, but if you have... A Catholic friend, or you have like a Greek, a Greek Orthodox friend. I don't know how many of you have had a Greek Orthodox friend, but if you do, you will find that their Old Testament has more books in it. If you have a Catholic friend, it's very possible that they will have 46 books in theirs. If you have an Orthodox friend, it's very possible they will have 50 books in their Old Testament. Do not be dismayed by that. Do not be thrown off by that. Just understand what that is. Okay? The books that are extra, they're known as the Apocrypha. 
I don't have that in your notes, but you can try to spell that. Uh, It's called the Apocrypha. And the Apocrypha was written in between the time period that the Old Testament finishes and the New Testament begins. There's roughly 400 years between that. And we would say that during that time, God did not specifically speak. Okay, He did not specifically reveal. And during that time, though, a lot of neat things happened. It's called the interbiblical period. During that time, we'll look at a little history lesson. That is the time that we have the Maccabees. Some of you may have heard of the, the book of Maccabees. Some of you, I'm sure all of us, know about Alexander the Great. Okay, we know about him. That is all during this time period where God did not specifically reveal anything to his people. During that time period, Alexander the Great plays a huge role in that he is going to basically conquer the world. And as he's conquering the world, he is bringing Greek influence to the world. So we're going to have pretty much the whole world is going to be under at least a foundation of Greek culture which is going to be awesome because God, though he is not specifically revealing anything at that time, clearly is not asleep, okay? He's awake and he's active in the people and in the creation. And at that time, something was happening around the world that God would use greatly for his glory. He was paving the way for his son. And he was paving the way for the beginning of the church. He was paving the way for a guy named Paul. To have a very interesting life, okay? Paul, who was a Roman citizen. Paul, who was a Jew. Paul, who greatly understood Greek culture, was able to take Greek culture and Jewish culture, collide them together, go into just about anywhere at any time, and be able to spread the message of Jesus Christ that is and was and always will be uh, specifically revealed. God was working. It's a really neat period of time. And the Apocrypha is going to have a number of books that are going to teach us about that time period between the, when the Old Testament ends and the New Testament begins. Okay, It is very good for you to read. I have only read it once. It was very interesting, though, and especially the book of Maccabees. If you read the book of Maccabees, you will very clearly understand what it was like for a Jew at the time of Jesus' birth. It will help you understand the mindset of the Jews in Jerusalem, and you'll understand so much more about the culture that our Savior was born into. The difference is this. We do not believe that the Apocrypha is God's Word. We believe that it is Christian literature, We believe that it is, in most cases, and especially what the Catholics have in their Bible, I believe that, as a whole, Christian scholars would say that we believe that it is true history, that it's good history, it's good to read, it's good to know, but we do not believe that it is authoritative in its nature. We're going to look at what it means to be God-breathed in just a little bit, okay? So we believe that this is not a bad thing, To read the Apocrypha, in fact, I would suggest for you to. But we do not believe it is authoritative like the 66 books that we have in the Old Testament and New Testament are that we have binded in our Bible. Okay? Let's let's look a little deeper at this. The 39 books that we have in our Old Testament, they were considered to be authoritative before the first century. Okay? So at the time that Christ was born... 
they already considered what we have as the Old Testament, these 39 books, they considered it to be authoritative. They considered it Scripture. I want to take you to a few passages in the Old Testament and a few passages in the New Testament. These are not even close to being all of them. I'm just going to take you to a few places to see how the people of Israel viewed the Scriptures and then also see how Jesus and uh, the apostles viewed the Old Testament. Okay? The 39 books that we have. So, if you will, turn with me to the book of 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles chapter 34. We're going to meet a guy named Josiah. Blankenship's the name Josiah. is a good name. There is Josiah. Isn't that an awesome name? Good biblical name. In the book of 2 Chronicles, we are going to have a guy named Josiah. He is king. He's a really young king. And he is going to... With somebody in his house, they are going to come across the law. More than likely, it is the book of Deuteronomy is what they find. But it could be all five of the books that we have in the Mosaic Law, which would be the first five books of your Bible. But more than likely, and a lot of people believe, it is the book of Deuteronomy that was found. Okay, But he finds God's law. Second Chronicles is in a different place in my Bible right now. I don't know. It's just not. There it is. Okay. <clears throat> But they are going to find the law, they are going to read the law, and they are going to be blown away. See, Josiah is going to understand something that we need to understand. We need to understand the story of what God has done for His people. Josiah is going to recognize, as the word is being read, that His people are God's people, and that God at one time rescued them from Egypt, and there was an exodus, a great exodus, a great journey from slavery into a land of promise and freedom. And Josiah reads that, and he's brokenhearted because the people had forgotten about God. And so he's going to make some changes. I just want you to see how he viewed it. Look with me, and there's so many things we could read in this story. Let's just look at verse 30. 30, yeah, let's read there. Verse 30, I mean, chapter 34, verse 30. And the king went up to the house of the Lord with all the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the Levites, all the people both great and small. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. Look at verse 31. And the king stood in his place and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of the covenant that were written in this book. This law had had authority over that guy. And it had authority over the people. See, when they read it, they didn't just view it like, oh, that's a nice little rule that we could... No, they saw it as this is God telling us who He is, what He's like, what He desires. They wanted to love God and they wanted to obey Him. Look with me in Ezra. No, excuse me. Look with me in Nehemiah chapter 8. And we're going to see Ezra. How many of you have just finished Nehemiah? Okay. Nehemiah is, I don't want to call it my favorite. I I call things my favorite all the time. And that's just not possible for more than one thing to be my favorite. But 
here's what we have in the book of Nehemiah. You have seven chapters where the people are going to be rebuilding a wall. Okay? It's a really awesome wall. But then the rest of the book is going to be about God rebuilding a people. Okay? That's a really simple outline for the book of Nehemiah. But what is going to happen with God rebuilding a people is going to begin with the Word of God confronting the people of God. Okay? And so what happens is Ezra is called onto the scene, and he is going to stand on a platform, and he is going to read the law. He's going to read, basically, the story of what God did for Israel, about what God has accomplished, and how He freed them, and what He desires, what He demands. That's what was read. Now, I want you to see the response from the people. Look at verse 6 in chapter 8. It says, And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. These people were blown away by God's Word. And it's a really neat scene, too. There's all these people, and you had some language issues. What was being read was in a language that they were not able to understand. And so you had scribes and you had some teachers. You had Levites around. You had them teaching the people what was being said. They were translating it for them. And the people were loving it because they were hearing it, many of them probably for the first time. And they changed the way they lived. They instituted festivals and feasts. They instituted traditions into their life because it was what God called them to do. It was authoritative. And lastly, let's see how we're doing on time real fast. Whoa, okay. Let's just put down Psalm 19 on your paper and you go read it at home, okay? Let's move on to the New Testament. we got to go, okay. <clears throat> let's look at the New Testament and see what Jesus and the apostles said about the Old Testament Scriptures and how we know that they believed it to be authoritative. Jesus quoted from the Old Testament hundreds of times. And you'll remember that when he was tempted in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4, you'll remember what he did. He quoted Scripture from the Old Testament. Okay? He spoke God's Word to Satan. In Luke chapter 4, you don't have to turn there, I'll just kind of summarize a few things. In Luke chapter 4, we know that Jesus is taking part in a corporate worship time, a, a corporate reading, and it is his turn to read from the Bible. Okay? And he is given a scroll that had Isaiah, uh, I believe chapter, oh my goodness, is it 71? I, no, that's not 71, 61. There's only 66 chapters in Isaiah. I think it is chapter 61, and Jesus is going to read from that. And he's going to do something really awesome, and I wish we could just go to it, but we really don't have time. He is going to say, hey, today this scripture is fulfilled in my life. <laughs> Okay, that's crazy. That's never happened in any worship service I've been in. Okay, so he's going to read and he's going to be like, hey, that's actually talking about me. Neat, isn't it? Okay, that's what's going to happen. He did not say neat, isn't it? Oh my goodness. He was so much better than that. That was crazy. Okay, Matthew chapter 5. We looked at this for a second this morning. Jesus says, I did not come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. I didn't come to abolish this. I didn't come to get rid of it. I didn't come to make fun of Moses. I didn't come to kick him out. No. 
I came to tell you what He was pointing to the whole time. I came to tell you that I am the fulfillment of it. Now what do I mean by that? I mean this very simply. That the entire Old Testament is pointing, pointing, pointing to something outside of itself. The Old Testament doesn't have an answer to the majority of the prophecies that are given. Or the majority of the promises. In fact, all of the promises dealing with salvation and eternity, they are found, the answer is found, only in Jesus. Jesus fulfilled them. Our sacrificial system pointed to Jesus. He's the sacrifice. He's the priest. Everything points to Jesus. Okay? And He fulfilled it. That's what He said. I didn't come to abolish it. I came to fulfill it. I saw this last week. I really like this. The Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. The New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. (laughs) I like that. One more place. Luke chapter 24. I bet I'm going to see some of you just smiling when we discuss this. This passage, because it's so exciting. Jesus is on the road to Emmaus. You remember this? And Jesus is talking to a couple of guys, and he's, he's teaching. And really, we can understand this. When Jesus had risen from the dead, he's on earth for 40 days, much of that time he was teaching. He was teaching his disciples. He was teaching other followers. He was teaching people about what the Word of God taught about him. And the way he would do that is he'd crack open the whole Old Testament. And look at what it says in Luke 24. Verse 44. It says, Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then look at verse 45. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. That is so cool. Like, just imagine this. He is going through the Old Testament. He's like, okay, remember the sacrificial system? You thought that was kind of weird and gross? Well, guess what? It was talking about me. Okay, it was pointing to me. I was the sacrifice. I was the lamb. That's what it was pointing to. He's like, remember in the Psalms when you were reading Psalm 22 and you had this really emotional time where, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was what I said on the cross. That was pointing to me. Remember when you were reading the book of Isaiah or the scroll of Isaiah? Remember when you were reading chapter 53? That was like sitting on the ground and watching me die on the cross. This was talking about me, this was talking about me, that was pointing to me, that was me, that was me, that was me, right there. Wow. That is so, so cool. So the New Testament, we see, it very much points to that the Old Testament is the Word of God and that it is authoritative. Okay, we have about ten minutes. Let's move very quickly. The New Testament contains 27 books. <clears throat> of these, they, it, it took a while before they were considered, uh, before all of the 27 books that we have in our Bible were considered to be authoritative. Okay? It took, uh, all of the writings were, with, were written within 100 years after the death of Jesus. We're going to look at that in just a second. 
And for it, it was a little bit different than the Old Testament. And this was why. When Jesus rose and he ascended into heaven, what did he tell his disciples? He said, go! And they did. They went. And they were urgent. And they were proclaiming what Jesus had taught them. All that he had said, all that he would bring to their remembrance, they were proclaiming it all around the world. The gospel went in just a matter of years from Jerusalem to Rome. There was a lot of going that was happening, okay, that was taking place. And what you'll find is that if you study history, it seems very clear that the New Testament writers did not exactly understand, wow, I think we're, about, I think we're supposed to write this down right now. Mm-mm. That's not what you see. It wasn't, hey, let's write this down, put it in a book, we'll use it on preaching on Sundays. No. No, they were using the Old Testament and they were running wildly to the nations proclaiming the message that Jesus gave them about himself. And what we find is at some point over the next, you know, what, 30, 40 years, we see that the disciples and all of the writers of the New Testament pen, whether it is the gospel accounts, we have four of those, they pen those at some point in the next 30, 40 years, and they wrote them down. They are authoritative. They are true. They were inspired by God. They were led by God. He spoke them. And then we have these letters that Paul wrote to to churches. We have 13 different letters that he himself penned. A few other epistles. We have the book of Revelation. We have all of these things that they took place and they were given at different times. A lot of what we have in the New Testament was considered authoritative fairly early. The church was using them and teaching them. Some of them came later. But all of them are considered that we have in the New Testament right here are considered by all Christian churches to be authoritative uh, by nature. Okay, And I want to give you really fast... The three, actually I have four, the uh, four truths that were used in measuring what was God's word and what was not that we have in the New Testament. That is called the New Testament canon, okay? That was a process where we weeded out things that were not God's word and we brought in things that are God's word. People like to say that men tampered with this. I do not believe that is the case. I believe that God himself has been, he is sovereign over the collection of his word. He was sovereign over the preservation of his word. And we have God himself leading a people to put together what is and what is not the word of God. I'm going to give these to you fairly quickly. We have only eight minutes now. Here we go. Four truths that were used. Number one, and I, you don't have to write these down. I, I didn't want to have to spell it for you. Um, Number one, they had to be apostolic in origin. Write this down beside it. You need to understand what that means, okay? They had to be written by an apostle, someone that was sent out directly from the mouth of Jesus, okay? Or closely associated with an apostle. So they had to be apostolic in origin. For example, Mark and Luke, they were not apostles, yet we know that they were closely connected to Paul and Peter. Okay? Number two, they had to be orthodox in teaching. They had to match up with what Jesus and the Old Testament said. Okay? Jesus doesn't say anything, and none of the gospel accounts say anything that is in contradiction to the Old Testament, and none of the other books of the New Testament could be contradiction to what Jesus said. Okay? 
None of them are. They all match up to what he said. If a work was, if if a work measured up, the church accepted it. If it did not measure up, they rejected it. That's how it worked. Look with me. Uh, the third, the third truth. The writings had to be ancient in age. Okay, what does that mean? This is another aspect of being apostolic, but it means this: it was the work. They had to ask the question, was the work written near the time of Jesus and within the lifetime of the apostles? So every single book of the New Testament was written in the lifetime of the apostles. There was nothing written, you know, 300 years after Jesus' death. And they went, okay, we'll put that in there. No. All of them were written during the time of the life of the apostles or the life of Christ. Okay? Fourthly, Universal in use. Was the work recognized by and used by almost everybody in the established churches for public worship? We look and we see in the first century, did they recognize this as scripture? Did they recognize this as being authoritative? And we can learn about those. There are several different writings that we can look to to learn what the early church did in the first century and the second century. And we'll find that these 27 books were found there. So, they are not just good writings, but they have authority. I am not going to be able to finish my outline tonight, but I am going to finish this last part. We just won't get the back of your, of your page tonight. <clears throat> the last part, once again... I want you to leave here knowing this, that the entire Bible is ultimately about Jesus. It all points to Him. It's a true story. I want to outline the Bible for you. It's a true story that tells of the perfect Creator making perfect creation. Two chapters about that, by the way. Interesting Joseph has 12 of the last 13 chapters of Genesis written about him. But we have two chapters on creation. Perfect creator making perfect creation. Secondly, a story that tells of the fall of mankind. It it really, over the last two or three years, my mind has just been blown with how big of a deal it is to understand the fall of man. People get so mad talking about the fall of man. The book of Romans tells us that because of the fall of man, that every single one born of man has a sinful nature. That we're condemned already. We're children of wrath. It's not a happy message, but it's a true message. We learn that from the Bible. It tells a story about the fall of mankind, why all this disarray exists. Thirdly, we see a true story that tells of the perfect creator God making a way for his marred creation to be made perfect again. We see all this pointing and all of a sudden, Jesus is born. Jesus, not born of man. He has no sinful nature. Jesus, born of God. He's perfect. And in his life, he's tempted, but yet he doesn't sin. And Jesus is able to go to the cross, take the wrath of God for sin of all who will believe. 
He dies and then he raises from the grave. He redeems all those who come. Fourthly, it's a true story that tells of the perfect creator God once again being perfectly restored to his people. And I'll end with this tonight. And we'll just pick up here next week. But I'll end with this. I want you to notice that this year when you're reading the Bible, something really neat. I want you to see that there in the first two chapters, we see a wedding. A wedding takes place with Adam and Eve. An unashamed couple. At the end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 19, we see another wedding. It's the wedding of the church, the bride, and the groom, Jesus. And it will be there that we see, it will be there, church, that we experience restoration. Our sin gone. Cancer gone, sickness gone, murder gone, rape gone, it's out of here. Jesus, love, that's what will exist. What a great, great story. Please, church, read the Word of God. Let's pray. Father, I love you so much. I thank you for your Word. I thank you for what you teach us about yourself. I thank you for what you teach us about what we need, and it's you. God, I pray that we would give our lives to you. I pray that we'd give our lives to your Word. We'd be doers of the Word, not hearers only. Oh God, be with this church as we devote ourselves to you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. He'd be through at seven, and he did. But could I ask you, could you give us the last blanks on, the, on that last part? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think if you will bring it back with you, I will just, uh, I, you know what, I will give it to you real quickly. And then if you want me to, I will start with that uh, next week. We have the Word of God is alive. <laughs> we looked at that this morning. Look at Hebrews 4, verse 12. You don't have to turn there right now, but just understand it cuts deep. It exposes death. The Word of God is alive. The Word of God is God-breathed or it's inspired. It's very interesting about the the Bible, it is literally God speaking, but yet it is literally man writing. That's a wonderful mystery. Wonderful mystery. The Word of God has eternal significance. It gives us all that we need to know God and live with Him forever. The Word of God will last forever. It is eternal, and it has eternal significance. Fourthly, we need it for sanctification. We need it for growing in Christ. All of you, church, we need the Word of God in our lives. And fourthly, the Bible doesn't need anything else that was really pointing to, the, uh, to other religious writings, specifically Mormonism and Islam. We don't need anything else. There's nothing that needs to be added. It is complete. Uh, I would love to spend time talking to you about that. We really don't have time tonight. Possibly, if you're interested, I will start there next time. But I love you, and thank you for being such a captive group of people. Amen. Uh, Kobe, you have communicated really well to us uh, this, this information, the story of the Scripture. And uh, we're excited about 
uh, the week, four more weeks to follow. And so uh, tell others about how much we're learning and growing and our knowledge of the Word. And these, this is going to help us to have a better overview of the Word of God so that when you read it, it kind of the pieces of the puzzle sort of fit together more completely for us. I don't know if God's working in the heart of any, any person or people in this room tonight, but I don't want to ever close a service without giving an opportunity to, for people to come to Jesus. To come to Jesus, because in Him you find forgiveness of sin. In Him you find um, you find the way to have eternal life, the way to be restored back into a right relationship with God who created us, the way that we can have a life that is full of, of meaning, abundant life that has purpose, and a life that sees this whole world and life from God's perspective rather than just man's perspective. And if the Spirit of God is speaking to anyone tonight, young, middle-aged, older, if he's speaking to your heart, this is the time to respond. The time to respond is when God is speaking because there may come a time when God's silent in your life. If you don't respond while he's speaking, that happened throughout the Bible on more than one occasion where God just quit speaking to a nation or to a group of people or an individual. There's a time when God just withdrew his spirit. He just backed away and just gave them over to their way, their own way. He, he said, okay, have it your way. And he, he pulled away. And so you don't want that to happen in your life. So don't harden your heart toward the Lord because every time you do that, it gets more calloused and more calloused. And then there comes a time when you're just insensitive to what God says. You're insensitive. You don't even hear because your ears, spiritual ears, are totally clogged with wax to where you cannot hear. You're deaf spiritually. So come to Christ. If God's speaking to you tonight, just come and say, Pastor, the Lord's calling me to him. Maybe he's calling you to him in salvation. Maybe he's calling you back to him out of, a, out of waywardness or drifting away from him. However God's speaking, would you respond? Let's stand together. Jennifer, can you come lead us? Uh, okay, she's on her way down. Let's, let's stand and... Um, and let's sing a song that will be a song of invitation for you to come and, and respond with us tonight. Is that Michael Fairchild I see in the back tonight? And this is Leisha. Lisha. Lisha. Uh, Y'all come up here. We hadn't seen these folks in a long time, and I, I thought I saw them back there. Y'all, Some of you remember when they were teenagers growing up in the church here? Good to see you. Good to see you, Alicia. And um, you'll want to speak to them and greet them after the service tonight and tell, you how glad, tell them how glad you are to see them here. All right. Lead us, Jennifer, in a song. You need a mic, don't you? I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow.
Jesus. No turning back. No turning Though none go with me. Though none go with me, I still will follow. Though none go with me, I still will follow. Though none go with me, I still will follow. No turning back. My cross I'll carry. My cross I'll carry till I see Jesus. My cross I'll carry till I see Jesus. My cross I'll carry till I see Jesus. No turning back. The world behind me. The world behind me, the cross before me. The world behind me, the cross before me. The world behind me, the cross before me. No turning back, no turning back. In the first uh, weeks of my coming to Alberta Baptist Church in 2004, uh, one of the persons that I met on a Wednesday night was Michael Fairchild. Michael had uh, been in jail, uh, 